Today, we're going to start a mini-series on the Gospel of John. Because if you're keeping up with your Bible reading for the year, uh, you're going to be reading in your New Testament portion from the Gospel of John for about the next month. So I'm going to preach on a text from John this morning, next Sunday, and the following Sunday morning, and then the one after that is going to be our November All-in-One, which is on November 17th. So a three-part mini-series all lessons, sermons from the Gospel of John. As we get started, I want to just say to you, I love weddings. And maybe some of you are not all that crazy about weddings. Maybe those of you out there who have recently planned a wedding and it stressed you out, uh, you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with a wedding for a while, okay? I don't really want to touch another wedding with a 10-foot pole. I know they can be stressful, But isn't there something special about a wedding? I really enjoy attending weddings. I like to go to weddings with Lauren. I think it's a good opportunity for couples to be reminded of the vows that they pledged to one another however many years ago they got married. I mean, it affords couples a special opportunity to remind them of the commitment they made to each other. And then for the couple, there is never... A gathering quite like a wedding in terms of who is there. You've got people, if you're a couple, you've got people there from your past, your present, and even your future. When we were married in 2007, some of you came to our wedding really before you even knew us and before you had become dear to us. But we had past teachers there and old friends and of course family members, friends from every stage of life. There's never going to be You've gotten married a gathering quite like there was at your wedding. Never going to be that type of assembly of people again. Weddings, very special events in our lives. And so this morning, with that in mind, I want to cordially invite you to attend a wedding with me. And it's a wedding that is recorded for us on the pages of the Gospel of John Chapter 2, and so I would invite you to grab a Bible or access the Word of God in whatever way that you can and go with me to John's Gospel, it's the fourth Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 1. This is the account of a wedding. Uh, Started out pretty, you know, run-of-the-mill ordinary, but then something quite extraordinary happens, and on the first pass... This narrative reads like the straight account of a miracle that Jesus performs at this particular wedding. And I want us to start by reading the story in its entirety, starting in verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, this means the third day after Jesus has had an encounter with Nathanael, who had become one of his apostles. This is just a time stamp here. On the third day after that happened, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. A wedding at Cana in Galilee. This was a village just a few miles north of Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown, where he grew up, where his parents lived. And here we find that not only is Jesus here at the wedding, but so is his mother, his mother Mary. We don't see her a whole lot on the pages of the Gospels, but we find her here. What is she doing at this wedding? Well, we don't know. Maybe it's a family member who's getting married. That's not outside the realm of possibility. 
since Cana was just up the road from Nazareth, or maybe it's a close friend. We're not sure why Mary is invited to the wedding, but here she is nonetheless, and she plays a very important role in this story. Verse 2 says, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples, many of of whom He has just named, He's just picked. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, wine being the staple drink for weddings, any celebration in this culture, really any meal. Um, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to Him, hey, they have no wine. Which shows us that Mary already knows that Jesus could do something about that. Jesus says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, many of you may be thinking, if I ever addressed my mother that way, I know exactly what would happen to me. I'd get a smack upside the head. Woman, the way that that is rendered in English sounds harsh, rude, disrespectful, but that's not the case in the original language. This wasn't a harsh greeting. It was simply a formal greeting. It comes across that way in in the English, but it wasn't that way. Jesus is addressing His mother formally. And why would that be? I don't know exactly. Maybe it is to show her that he doesn't, now as a grown man, ultimately answer to his mother. He ultimately answers to his heavenly father. And so maybe that's why he addresses her in this way that sort of implies distance and formality. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, meaning his hour of suffering. The, the hour that he uh, would come to the cross and hang there for the sins of all mankind. My hour, that hour has not yet come. But his mother, verse 5, said to the servants, hey, do whatever he tells you. So she thinks that Jesus is not quite done here. Verse 6, now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And you know, anytime you find Jesus offering some sort of strange uh, command on the pages of the Gospels, you know something amazing is about to happen. Hey, to the servants, fill those jars with water. Something extraordinary is afoot here. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, the the groom himself, and said to him, the groom, you know, usually everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And it's an abundance of good wine. When Jesus says, fill all these jars to the brim, he turns around 120 gallons of water into wine. That's a lot of wine. You have kept the good wine until now, says the master of the feast to the groom. This is the good stuff. Verse 11, this, John summarizes the story. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory And his disciples believed in him. The first of his signs, John says. The very first time he ever performed a miracle, which 
tells us that Jesus, through his boyhood and early manhood, had not performed any miracles or signs up to this point, but had had lived with his divine identity hidden. John says, the first time that he ever showed people that he was something special and that he possessed within himself the very power of God. Now, when we read this, it might seem simply like another miracle account. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm not saying that's not a big deal. You know, that ain't nothing. Uh, John says at the close of this account that this was a sign that shows the glory of God through Jesus. It shows the power of God. It shows that Jesus is His Son, that He is quite literally God in the flesh as John has already established in his gospel back in chapter 1, verse 14. And what does this sign do? Well, it causes his disciples to believe in him, to have faith in him. And that's a big deal. And this ties in with the stated purpose of John's gospel, which he provides for us later on in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We read John summarizing what he has shared in this book. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And wouldn't you love to know about all the other signs that revealed God's glory to the people, all the other miracles that he performed? John says he did hundreds more, but they're not recorded here. But, he says, these are written, the changing of the water to the wine included, so that you may believe. So it's not just for their purpose on this occasion, it's, so, it's for us. It's that when, we, when reading, we may recognize that there's something special about Jesus and we may believe that He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, not just believing, that you may live in His name. And so that is not insignificant. And then... We see, as we do in many of his miracles, there is an exceptional quality. You know, I hear people today talk about he or she is extra. Okay, that's kind of a, that's what the cool young people are saying. Okay, and you know, I'm, since I'm a cool young person, I can tell you what the hip lingo is. Okay, so people out there are saying he or she is like extra. Well, Jesus is extra here. Did you notice the quantity of the wine. I mentioned earlier, gallons upon gallons were produced, and also the quality. The master of the feast says, usually people serve the good stuff first, and then the poor stuff at the end, but you've saved the best stuff for last. If we were to send a sommelier or an expert in wine back in time, and he or she tasted what Jesus had produced, they would say, this is the best wine that has ever been created. So there is a great quantity of wine and the quality too. Every time Jesus performs a miracle, he goes over the top. It's exceptional. It's more than what you would expect. And so there is this element of the story that it's a powerful miracle and it shows God at work and it shows who Jesus is and it's supposed to engender faith in us. But if you know about John, if you know about his gospel, then you know there's probably more to the story. You see, John John is a different animal than Matthew and Mark and Luke. Many of you know this, having read 
the Gospels. Matthew and Mark and Luke, the first three, we call them the synoptic Gospels because they share a lot of the same content in common. But then John comes along, and his Gospel reads differently. In fact, 90% of John's material in his Gospel is unique to him. We don't read about it in Matthew Mark and Luke, and that includes this story. The story of the wedding at Cana and the water to wine is only included in the Gospel of John. Additionally, John is more thoughtfully and artfully arranged. And I'm not saying there isn't literary beauty to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's like in John, it's turned up a notch. And in John too, there's more symbolism at play. John doesn't want us to only read the words on the page. He wants us to read between the lines. In that way, John is a bit like, well, this iceberg that I've got up on the screen. Just a small portion of it is up there on the surface. And you can read John at a surface level, but throughout, John is inviting you to see all of of that which lies beneath the surface. And there's a wealth of wisdom that lies just beneath the surface. If we're only willing to dive in. So what's going on beneath the surface in this story? Well, our first clues are the mention of a wedding and the shortage of wine. Both, a wedding and wine, both of these are loaded with symbolic significance. And when we understand that, that is like the key that unlocks the riches of this story. What is the image that Jesus uses for the arrival of God's kingdom. He tells a parable about it in Matthew chapter 22. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. What is the image that he uses there? A wedding feast. And what is the image used later in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation to be specific? The image for our eternal home with God? Well, it's a wedding feast. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, it is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Weddings were a time of great rejoicing and celebration. So it's natural that those became a symbol for the arrival of God's kingdom and for our future inheritance with God. And in the New Testament, Christ is compared on more than one occasion to the groom, the bridegroom at a wedding, and the church, like her predecessor Israel in the Old Testament, is compared to Christ's bride in places like John chapter 3, verse 29, and Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. And so the wedding imagery is rich in the New Testament. Well, how about the wine? And you know, you can get maybe get in a little trouble talking about Wine. By the way, I want to say this is not a story about alcohol consumption and whether Christians should drink alcohol or not. I don't drink alcohol, not a drop. I'm what people would call a teetotaler. And I believe I have compelling biblical reasons to abstain completely from alcohol. And I have shared those reasons with this congregation in the past, and I probably will again in the future. But that's not what this story is about. And if you reduce this story to a discussion about Christians and alcohol, then you're missing out on the bigger point. Wine was a sign of God's blessing, of His 
abundance in the Old Testament in many different places. And listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus uses wine in in, uh, a symbolic way here. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, the, the, the encasing for the wine that was used to hold it. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. What's Jesus talking about there? Well, I think in short, Jesus is saying, I am doing something so new in your midst that it does not fit into old categories. So don't try to shove it into old ways of thinking. What I am doing is so novel and so fresh and so new. Don't try to put it into old wineskins. And so the images of the wedding and the wine, they are at play here. And and we miss out if we don't see those elements inviting us into a deeper understanding of this story. I think when we read this, John wants two lines to ring in our ears when we read. The first is this, they have no wine. That's what Mary says, the mother of Jesus. To Jesus, they have no wine. They're all out. And this is not just a statement reporting to Jesus about the status of the refreshments at the wedding. Let's go deeper. This represents the spiritual barrenness, the desolateness of Judaism at that time. There was a drought. They had run out. Uh, They had been depleted. And, and we find another symbol of this when we see those jars, those six stone jars. They're not just any kind of jars in verse 6. They are for the Jewish rites of purification. And so John is wanting us to see that the well of Judaism is empty. That the, the nourishment and the resources have run out. And not just that, he also wants to, us to see this, that the world is spiritually barren and desolate. There is no wine left. The goodness and the bounty, it has run out. John wants us to see, he wants us to notice that line. He wants it to ring in our ears, but there's another line too, and it's this. You've kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast says this to to the bridegroom, he says, normally at weddings you serve the good stuff first and then the bad stuff later, but you've kept the best stuff for last. And it's not just a statement about the quality of the wine that Jesus produced. John wants us to see something deeper here. And it is that Jesus brings spiritual fullness and blessing and bounty. Jesus is not simply better than life under the Old Testament law, life under the Old Covenant. He is better than any spiritual option that is on the smorgasbord of options in our culture today. You're not going to get any better than Jesus. He is sweeter than all, as we just sang about. Indeed, you have kept the good stuff until now. I've never tasted anything better than this. This is the best quality that I've ever had. Jesus brings into a world of desolateness and barrenness, fullness and blessing and bounty. So this is a story, yes, it's a story about a miracle that shows God's glory and reveals Jesus' identity and engenders faith among his followers. 
but it's also a story about how Jesus has come that we may have life and have it more abundantly, as Jesus himself said in John chapter 10, verse 10. This is a story about how, as Paul says, the old has passed away, the old is done, and the new has come. Do we live in a spiritually barren, empty world today? Are there people in our society that continue to try to draw up waters out of empty, dried up wells? They continue to go back to these sources of fulfillment and satisfaction only to find that the bucket is empty again? Do we live in a world like that? A world that is desperate for Jesus? You better believe it. The rapper Kanye West (laughs) has made news in the last couple weeks. He's been a controversial figure for as long as he's been on the public stage. But he's made news in the last couple weeks because he claims that he has converted to Christianity. That he's become a a born-again believer. And he's recently, in the last couple days, released an album called Jesus is King with gospel songs. I mean, with just a straight album of songs praising God. You know, is he genuine? By all accounts, it seems that he is, uh, that he's seeking after Jesus, that he's found something in Jesus that, that appeals to him. I, you know, I don't think it's a gimmick. I don't think he's taking us for a ride. Will it stick? I, I don't know. Does he believe rightly about all points of doctrine? Probably not. But we ought to pray that he will continue running headlong into the truth of God's word, should we not? And I bring him up to say, should we really be surprised that someone like him finds Jesus to be appealing? Should we really be surprised that someone of his stature is enamored with Jesus Christ? I mean, he's to me sort of like the writer of Ecclesiastes who says throughout his book in the Old Testament, I have tried everything that this life has to offer. I've tried pleasure. I've tried entertainment. I've I've tried power. I've tried wealth. But at the end of the day, the only thing that seems to work, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. That seems to be what it's all about. And here we've got this guy, Kanye West, more successful than we can imagine has tried out all this stuff, but now it seems he's discovered Jesus, and I'm not going to weigh in on the genuineness of his faith, but should we be surprised that when someone like him stumbles upon Jesus, they find him to be like an oasis in a desert? We live in a spiritually barren land. Jesus is like a drink of fresh, cold water. I mean, don't we believe that about Jesus? Maybe if we're cynical about someone coming to the faith or someone sort of experimenting about following Jesus, if we're cynical about that, maybe that says something about our own zeal and excitement for Jesus. I mean, don't we think Jesus is still appealing to people today? Isn't there still power in the Word? Isn't there still good news in the Gospel? I mean, if we don't believe that the good stuff, the the absolute best stuff is found in Jesus, then we've got a problem. The best stuff is found in Jesus. Better than anything else. Better than any other option. Sweeter than all. The best stuff. When you realize that you're a sinner 
and that your sin separates you from God, that you can't have a relationship with God, that is incredibly bad news, infinitely bad news. But then when you discover that there is a Savior named Jesus, who is God's Son, who came to earth to die on the cross so that your sins could be removed from you, so that you could be in a relationship with God, that is infinitely good news. That is the best kind of news that you can hear. When you're going through this life and you feel alone and isolated and there's nobody there to help, but then you hear about the gospel and you hear about something called the Holy Spirit that God gives to believers upon their confession and their baptism and the Holy Spirit is with you to guide you, to accompany you through this life, manifesting God's presence. That is the good stuff. That is good news. When you hear that at your death, because of your sin, you will face eternal torment and punishment because of your sin, because it makes you unworthy before God, that is bad news. But then when you hear that Jesus Christ, as His Son and our Savior, brings eternal life, life forever in the presence of God, that is infinitely good news. The best stuff is found in Jesus. And Jesus' arrival means Infinite blessings that the feasting can begin. That's what Jesus' arrival means. That's what this story is about. At its heart, there is good news in this story. The good news is, when we are feeling empty and depleted, many times of our own making, when we are feeling empty from all the mindless scrolling, when we are feeling empty after the, the ceaseless search for wealth, when we are feeling empty after the endless quest for pleasure, when we are feeling empty after drawing up dry buckets from well after well after well, Jesus comes along and says, guess what? I can fill you up. I can satisfy you. Let the wedding feast begin. Bring out the best wine. Listen, there is a great gaping hole in our hearts and we try to fill it with everything but Jesus, but it's so big that no one and nothing can fill it up like Jesus. So my question for you is, what are you trying to fill that hole up with besides Jesus? Because it's not going to work it's not going to work and so i say give me jesus give me only jesus give me nothing but jesus i want to taste and see that the lord is good because he is let the feasting begin bring out the best wine jesus is here and he brings with him abundant blessings now and forevermore. It is sweet to trust in Jesus. Some of you have not placed your faith in Jesus. I want to challenge you to do that today. I want to challenge you to come and to confess His sweet name. To come and to be baptized in these waters so that your sins can be washed away. So that you can rise up a new creature ready to walk out of here and forevermore in newness of life. 
Or if you've been trying to fill up the hole in your heart with anything but Jesus, let the words of the Scriptures speak loud and clear. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Give me Jesus and only Jesus. He is the only one that can satisfy my deepest needs and longings. Let the feasting begin in your life. Bring in the best wine. Let Jesus be your Lord. If you need Jesus today, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing?